Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this episode, we resume our series on the letter of 1 John. We're looking at the last half of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3. In the last episode, we outlined several themes that recur in this letter. First, the concreteness of the gospel. Then, our love for others and God's love for us. Then a duality that pits good versus evil, and even us versus them. And finally, the importance of both what we believe and what we do. Most of these themes are going to resurface in the text that we cover today. As we hinted in the last episode, we also get our first clear indication that there's division within the community that John is addressing. There are things this author considers non-negotiable when it comes to our Christian faith. Differences on things like this will inevitably split the community. So let's survey the text and see where John is headed. We'll be examining the text fairly closely in this episode. You could certainly get the gist fine with the text in front of you, but if you can, you might want to open a Bible and follow along. We're starting in 1 John 2, verse 15, and we're going through chapter 3, verse 10. In the middle of chapter 2, John placed a poetic address to the children, the young people, and the elders in the church. Everyone is in the frame, so to speak. And that's where we concluded in the last episode. As soon as he finishes that address, we get three verses that begin with this warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, to use John's words, are what delight you, then it's clear that you really don't love God the Father. We've got the dualism the world and its desires versus God and what God wants. And we've got the issue of love, although here it's love that is potentially misdirected. We'll come back and talk more about that later on. John, I want to lay out what I think is going on here. These three verses are maybe the opening salvo, or perhaps more accurately, they are like the first stage of fireworks. (laughs) You see the rocket fire off and streaming into the sky. You know the big explosion is coming, but you haven't quite seen it yet. (laughs) That's coming in the next verses here. Before we move on, though, notice that while John had no problem talking about what we have seen and heard, in other words, he had no problem talking about God interacting with creation. John also still has no problem talking about the world as something bad. You might ask, hang on, isn't that what the Gnostics said? Ah. Didn't they say the world's a bad thing, a cosmic mistake? We really could spend some time here, but I think it should be enough for now to say that Christians, as represented by John, are taking a sort of middle road here. The created world is not inherently bad, and it was created by God. God does interact with it and with us directly, but the world is clearly permeated with evil. It may have been created by God, but something has gone terribly wrong. On this, at least, Christians and Gnostics might agree. The world we live in, to use the modern vernacular here, is a truly messed up place. (laughs) Gnostics will say God never intended all this and would never have created it. Christians, on the other hand, say God never intended this, but God did create it. We ourselves have been responsible for frustrating God's purpose and turning the world into what it is now. But John, what strikes me is the way these three verses conclude. The world and its desires pass away, 
but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The first thing that comes to my mind when I read this is Isaiah 40, verses six through eight. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers mm. of the field. And I think it goes on, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Yeah. Or maybe this is less prophecy and more tied to the wisdom tradition. But in any case, at this particular point in the book, it sure looks like a very Jewish and dare I say, Old Testament perspective here. <laughs> yeah, there certainly seems to be an echo of wisdom tradition in the sense that we have, on the one hand, the things of the world that are temporary and fleeting, and on the other hand, the things of God that last forever. Right. It calls us to pay attention to what God is doing and what God is calling for, because the rest only lasts for an instant in the big picture. It's easy to see the prophetic echo of Isaiah 40 here also, Ron, like you said, as Isaiah speaks to the community of faith in exile and points out that the promises of God are good forever precisely because the God who makes those promises is going to be around forever to keep them. Right. No one else can say that. So in reality, all human things are fleeting. We should therefore trust in God, which means living according to the will of God. So perhaps there's a general idea in the background that we're seeing peek through here from the Old Testament. I think there is something there, but it's hard to draw a direct line to a specific wisdom or prophetic tradition as a clear source for it. It's also possible that more in the foreground here is the idea that through the coming of Jesus Christ, things have been set in motion that establish that the world's days are numbered. Ah, okay. I I read somewhere the phrase, there's no future in worldliness. (laughs) (laughs) Those who do the will of God are the ones with a future. I would see that in the sense that we find in the Gospel of John— speaking about those who believe never perishing, but living forever. John, I said verses 15 through 17 were like the first stage of fireworks streaming up into the sky. We know the big explosion is coming. And in verse 18 of chapter two, the fireworks burst open goes like this. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Ooh, Ron, the word Antichrist. (laughs) That that certainly conjures up a lot of things in our modern minds, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Our culture loves to trot that word out as a label for people who one group or another considers especially evil. Right. Of of course, these days, evil is most often defined as anyone who holds a different political ideology. A person of great power or influence from the wrong, quote, ideology is certainly an antichrist or even sometimes the The Antichrist. antichrist. That's how absurdly extreme the rhetoric goes nowadays. We often make the mistake of reading this word antichrist into the book of Revelation, don't we? Yeah. In connection with the beast in that book, which then we take and read back into 1 John. That gives us a very wrong idea of what that term means in favor of all kinds of spooky figments of our imaginations, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And sometimes I wonder, yes, uh, people will use that word to label their opponents. And then I think there are others who are just strongly suspicious of anyone who uses the word antichrist. So I would avoid it like yeah. the plague anyway. <laughs> but it is really important that we understand what's going on here. This is the first place the word antichrist shows up. And as you pointed out, John, it never actually appears in the text of Revelation. 
if we read it in there, we're doing just that. We're reading it in. So we need to peel back all the layers our modern world has laid on top of this term and look closely at what John means here. In just a few verses, that's actually going to become crystal clear. As far as I'm concerned, this is a technical term for John, and I think it has a very precise meaning here. We'll cover that in just a minute, but here it actually has absolutely nothing to do with the popular misconceptions about end times. Even if John uses the phrase last hour here, for him, and he's writing in the first century, it is the last hour right now. Mm. And he's talking about realities in his own time and something that just happened. So when he talks about an antichrist in this context, he's talking about specific people. But we'll get to all that in just a minute. Yeah, turning back to the divisions in the community, the next verse reads, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Mm-hmm. So, Rod, who is this they? <laughs> who, who, are, who are they? Who is he talking about? The short version is we wish we knew. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but we might be able to guess. So, John, why don't we let's keep going and let's just see where this goes. Okay. Verse 20 opens with this. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Just one verse later, we see John once again perfectly happy to identify the liars around him. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also, he says. So I think, John, here we have it. If I had to guess, the Antichrists here are the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And it's a guess but maybe a safe guess that those are the ones who have gone out, who have left the community. There's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with this. The assertion that Jesus is Christ amounts to Jesus is Messiah, to use the Hebrew word instead of the Greek. And if we put all that in plain English, it's the same thing as saying Jesus is the anointed one. Now, too, we can see where that term antichrist comes from and why John might say there have been many. It actually has this very precise meaning. Anyone who is antichrist is someone who refuses to say Jesus Uh, is the Christ. Yeah. Just to play this out, you might imagine the opponents in this case saying, hey, I'm not antichrist. I just refuse to say that that particular man, Jesus, is the Christ. Mm. But as far as this author is concerned, that basic assertion, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is the anointed one, is a central, non-negotiable tenet of Christian faith. And John, you and I have spent some time with this idea of Christ or Messiah or anointed one. Yeah, the Messiah was indeed long awaited in Israel for For centuries, in fact, Messiah was to be the answer to Israel's hopes and the solution to their needs and their problems. Of course, Israel came to believe that its greatest problem was Rome, (laughs) when in fact, the world needed a savior from sin. And you know, to be fair here, when we get to Revelation, the author of Revelation does consider Rome a big problem. Not the only problem, but a big problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, to be sure. But the future of God's people rested on the Messiah, and the promise of his coming was Israel's greatest hope. 
so like you said, Ron, we've spent a lot of time on this and we even had an entire series on it called Ultimate Hope Has a Name. And we encourage our listeners to go back and catch that if you missed it. But here in this letter, John asserts that Jesus is that person, the anointed one or the Messiah. And he's that hope to which Israel had been looking for all of those centuries. To take it one more step, here's what I imagine is going on in the background of the letter. I want to be clear, there may be a heavy dose of speculation in this, but I don't think it's entirely implausible. The author is addressing a community that includes many Jewish Christians and maybe groups that all used to be part of a synagogue together. The group he is addressing is the group that became completely convinced that Jesus is that expected Messiah. And let's be clear, this is the same Jesus that was executed by the Romans in Jerusalem. And I chuckle only because execution is basically a major disqualifier for being a Messiah. (laughs) It is. But his disciples claimed he rose from the dead. The readers John is addressing believe this wholeheartedly. The group that went out the group that's no longer part of them, that's the group that was not convinced. For whatever reason, they just don't see how this Jesus is the Messiah. Or maybe they think the messianic hopes of many first century Jews are overblown anyway. In any case, they refuse to say Jesus is the Messiah. If this is accurate, and I want to emphasize there is perhaps a lot of reading into the text here, but we don't have much else to go on. If this is accurate, then it becomes clear just how heartbreaking this situation is. Yes, A formerly tight community of Jews, possibly many communities, remember this is not a letter addressed to a specific community, possibly many communities have been torn apart by the message of God's work in Jesus Christ. And again, if the scenario is accurate, the author of this letter gives no quarter. Who is the liar, he demands. These people should have known better, he's convinced. No one should have left. For what it's worth, I imagine this is something like Paul's experience in Corinth. And we get that in chapter 18 of Acts. Paul starts in the synagogue, but he gets so fed up, he leaves in disgust. And according to Luke, that's when he says, that's it. From here on out, I'm going to the Gentiles. Yeah, Ron, it's heartbreaking that the opponents or the antichrists in this case were very likely good, faithful, Orthodox Jews. Yes. They just weren't convinced by the gospel story. Right. This is truly tragic. We can understand the root disagreement that must have developed concerning how the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. was being interpreted by a community of Jews. The fact that something as fundamental as this is dividing the synagogue probably isn't surprising, but it's no less tragic and certainly no less heartbreaking to John. One other thing, let's not forget how this whole passage begins. You have anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. How do those who are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, how do they know that? They know it because they themselves have been anointed. It's hard for me not to hear the Gospel of John in the background, snippets from Jesus' monologue pieces from chapters 14 and 16, where Jesus says he will send the counselor, paraclete, basically the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, we have a very Trinitarian statement here. The Holy Spirit anoints the believers and bears witness both to the Father and to the Son. In any case, the author really does seem to be struggling with how they could have not found agreement on this. As far as he's concerned, this is partly explained 
explained by the remaining believers being receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Ron, it might be worth mentioning that the truth that Jesus is the Messiah is something that the Spirit witnesses to us. It's divinely revealed. I think of that well-known conversation that Jesus has with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, where he asks, who do you say that I am? Yes. Remember, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to that confession, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. God revealed this to him, and he received it. So recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah as a work of revelation by the Holy Spirit certainly does seem to be the theme as we head into the next several verses, 24 to 28. We'll read in verse 27, for instance, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And he goes on to suggest that this is the anointing that teaches the believers. He also observes that it's by this anointing that the community remains in the Father and the Son. It's worth noting also that, once again here, there's a strong verbal tie there to the long monologue of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17. I alluded to that just a little bit earlier. In chapter 15, Jesus talks about the disciples remaining in him and he in them. But notice it wasn't only the anointing that keeps the believers remaining in God. That opening verse in this section reads, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. I can't help but think this is a cryptic, perhaps cryptic to us way for John to tell the Jewish community that the scripture they have, what we call the Old Testament, what they have heard from the beginning, even before they heard about God's work in Jesus Christ, all of that, John wants to say, is reliable. That would be an especially important point if the group that walked away, the group that denied Jesus is the Christ, is also the group that claims to be the ones truly faithful to Israel's law. Yeah. John is saying, no, that is all reliable, and it supports what we're saying about the work of God in Jesus, who, (laughs) by the way, is also the Messiah. The author concludes chapter 2 with this theme of remaining in him, in Jesus Christ, in the Father. If there's any ambiguity, it simply reinforces the unity of the Father and Son. (laughs) Fair enough. In any case, the chapter concludes with the observation that those who remain in Christ also do what is right. We cannot escape that theme. We've seen it coming, and here it is. We need to know what is true but that inevitably expresses itself in doing what is right. Chapter 3 opens, though, with soaring language. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That may be my favorite part of this whole book. And the phrase that most fires my imagination is that statement, what we will be has not yet appeared. Mm. There are strong hints here and many other places in the New Testament that what God intends for us is so remarkable, so filled with joy and wonder that it is quite literally beyond our capability to imagine or comprehend. We've talked about how the profession of Messiah was supposed to inspire hope. 
Well, this does too. Here's the theme of hope again. Am I having a hard time finding my way out of despair? Is it hard to see how anything good can lie in the future? Perhaps that's not so surprising in a world beset by evil, but astonishingly good things lie in Mm. store for us. What exactly it is remains to be revealed. Yeah, let's not miss, though, that John unleashes the theme of love in a big way here, too. Yeah. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. This expresses itself in a particular relationship to God. How great is the Father's love that we should be called children of God. Your favorite piece, Ron, uh, what we will be has not yet been made known, is true precisely because we are children of God. This seems to be some special relationship God bestows on those who acknowledge the truth and, as we'll see shortly, also do what God commands, right? Yeah, that phrase, children of God, rightly understood in the Johannine context, can actually be quite unsettling to Christians. I once sat in a group of ordination candidates. A bunch of people were going on to be ministers. As they talked, it became clear that most of them understood the phrase, children of God, to mean created by God. And so the message they wanted to convey was, we're all children of God. Nothing could be further from the mindset we find in the Johannine literature. It's clear here in this letter. It's also clear in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Child of God, at least in the Gospel of John and in this letter, is a title reserved for those who recognize what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ and who go on to see that bear fruit in their lives by doing what God wants them to do. As an aside, the idea that the children of God refers to all of us isn't entirely unknown in the New Testament. Paul actually pulls that out when he quotes a pagan philosopher in his sermon in Athens of all places. And it makes sense in that context when you get to it. His argument is that he's now telling these wayward Athenians about the God they should have known all along. And there, the phrase children of God clearly has a wider scope. It's just not at all what the phrase means when we see that phrase in this Johannine literature. When John talks about love then, even the love of God, there's always the possibility that we will reject that love. Yeah, It's obvious in this context. As far as John is concerned, that love has been rejected by real people when they refuse to accept what God did in Jesus Christ. It can also be rejected when individuals refuse to do what God commands, and we're going to see that in the next verses. The point is, in this letter where the most well-known passage may be, God is love, it is nonetheless equally clear that God's love demands a response. Failure to respond to that love puts us at odds with God, and that is not a good place to be. It doesn't change God's love, but the outcome of the relationship is contingent on the response that we make. The Bible simply does not teach that God's offer of love creates fixed outcomes that are unaffected by our responses. That is, it's not biblical at all to conclude that there's no difference between the relationship a person who rejects God's love has with God and the relationship that a person who accepts that love has with God. God loves both in any case, 
but the resulting relationship is anything but the same. John, when I hear you say that, I can't help but think what I've heard you say sometimes about prophecy. We'll read the prophecy as these are all the terrible things God's going to do. But I've, I seem to recall you said that's almost always contingent on if you don't repent. And there's always a way to come back to God and, and avoid the terrible things that are discussed there. Yeah, there's an outcome in mind. And the nature of that outcome literally rests on the response of the people. Got and that's it. active in exactly that, what we call contingent prophecy. Well, all of this certainly tempers my excitement about that phrase, what we will be, has not yet been made known. Specifically in this passage, I do have to acknowledge that it's followed by everyone who has this hope. And I, like I said, I think this is a fantastic hope, but it says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, meaning Jesus in this case, just as Jesus is pure. As far as I'm concerned, that's a bracing splash of cold water to the face. Mm -hmm. It was a fantastic hope, but purity, <laughs> doing ah. things right, that's the first step. I, why does it have to be so mundane? Shoot, why does it have to be so hard? <laughs> this question of exactly what God's love is and how we must respond will be a central focus of the next episode, by the way. So join us for that. In fact, as we move into the next section, doing what is right is exactly where John goes. This close relationship with God means we join God's side and do what God expects. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, John writes, and no one who is born of God will continue to sin. This may catch people by surprise, Ron. <laughs> if we've been paying attention, we know that John asserted back in chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, that makes sense to us. We can almost hear Paul himself saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. Now we get the emphatic statement in verse 6, for instance, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Yes, and for what it's worth, the translations there typically do a little interpretation to try to make the meaning clear. The New International Version does it, even the English Standard Version does it, and it's typically more literal or it leans in the direction of formal equivalence. As I make it out, the Greek says flatly, everyone who remains in him does not sin. <laughs> so the translations tweak that to does not keep sinning. In any case, the logic seems clear enough. In chapter one, the point is that we have all sinned and we're all in need of the work that God did for us in Jesus. The point here in chapter three is that being in Jesus Christ, we've sided with God the one who came to destroy all that's evil. It would be preposterous if we knowingly continued to sin. In case this isn't crystal clear, <laughs> John emphasizes it with one more instance of the kind of dualism that we've come to expect. There are really just two sides. If you're not a child of God, the other option is child of the devil. <laughs> Again, those are John's words. John's words. <laughs> those are his words. And the passage concludes with a test of sorts, a way to differentiate whose child you are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, we had already encountered the need to love our brothers. Now John expands that to doing what is right in general. So pick your side 
and Ron, in the words of the Grail Knight from Indiana Jones <laughs> oh, no. and the Last Crusade, oh, no. choose wisely. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, we have seen many of the themes we identified early on. There's a vitally important piece of God's work that we have to acknowledge, something God did in this physical world. It was God's work in Jesus Christ, and the acknowledgement comes in the form of recognizing that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah or the Anointed One. That article of faith, if we can call it that, doesn't stand alone. Recognizing Jesus as Messiah means recognizing Jesus' work to destroy all that is evil. If we say we're on God's side of that fight, then we cannot be participating in what is evil. What we believe and how we behave go hand in hand. There are those who refuse to accept this. And John has harsh words for the ones who left the community because they refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. At the same time, Those who do accept that Jesus is the Messiah must act accordingly. And finally, John continues to expand the ways he describes God's love. That love expresses itself in a relationship that we can best describe as being children of God. But, and with John there's always a but, (laughs) God's love demands a response. Refuse to respond correctly, and the consequences are dire. In the next episode, we'll work through the rest of chapter three and chapter four, where this theme of God's love comes front and center. Now and only now do we have the context to interpret what John means when he says God is love. Join us as we continue to decipher what John is telling this community that has just experienced the deep pain of division. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website. It's orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. 